You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. start. We may have a few other people joining us uh, during the course of the event. But um, first I want to introduce myself. My name's Wendy Fenton and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network here at ODI. And I'd like to welcome all of you and all of the people online to today's launch of the 71st edition of the Humanitarian Exchange magazine and the theme of which is the crisis in Nigeria in the Lake Chad Basin. I think you've all got copies of it on your on your chairs. Um, the Lake Chad Basin, as I think most of you know, is one of the most overlooked humanitarian crises today, where around 17 million people across northeastern Nigeria, Cameroon's far north, western Chad, and southeast Niger are in need of urgent humanitarian assistance and protection. There are about 7.2 million dependent on food aid. And the Boko Haram attacks and counterinsurgency campaign have displaced at least 2.4 million people, and the vast majority of whom are in the northeastern Nigerian states of Borno, Adamoa, and Yobe, where humanitarian access is restricted. Attacks against civilians are increasing and unsafe conditions in displacement sites, insecurity, and systemic patterns of sexual exploitation and abuse related to the lack of sufficient food and other humanitarian assistance persists. Underlying the current crisis is a history of political and economic marginalization, poor governance, and environmental degradation. Many people are living in desperate conditions without access to food or clean water. Malnutrition rates are alarmingly high. Outbreaks of hepatitis E, malaria, and cholera in northeast Nigeria and Niger have exacerbated the really difficult conditions in the region. And so today, drawing on articles in the humanitarian exchange and their own experiences, our panelists are going to discuss the current humanitarian development challenges in the region, including issues of protection and humanitarian access, the Boko Haram crisis, and why it took so long for the humanitarian system to recognize the crisis and mount an effective response. But before I introduce our speakers, can I just remind you to put your phones on silent, but feel free to tweet using the hashtag LakeChadCrisis. And I'll be taking questions and comments from our audience, both in the room and online, following the panel discussion. So hold your, your thoughts and questions for now. Now, moving to our panelists, we have an extremely interesting group of panelists and contributors today. And we'll be starting with a video message from Jan Eglin, the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Jan has recently returned from the region, but wasn't able to be with us today. Immediately before joining NRC as Secretary General in 2013, Jan Eglin was the Europe Director of Human Rights Watch and the Executive Director of the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. From 2003 to 2006, he was the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. Jan has also acted as the UN Secretary General Special Advisor on Colombia, was the Secretary General of the Norwegian Red Cross, State Secretary in the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs for several years, and he's held numerous other high-level positions. He's also initiated and fostered several critical peace processes during his career. 
So we were very uh, grateful to Jan for uh, taking the time to actually record a video message for us, and he's recently returned from the region. Joining us by video link from Afghanistan, you'll see on your screens, is Toby Lanzer, the Deputy Special Representative for Afghanistan in the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, or UNAMA, as well as the United Nations Resident Coordinator, Humanitarian Coordinator, and resident representative of the United Nations Development Program. That's a lot of titles, Toby. <laughs> Toby has a wealth of experience in development, humanitarian affairs, and peacekeeping <coughs> since first joining UNDP in 1992. And his most recent positions have included regional humanitarian coordinator for the Sahel, deputy special representative, resident coordinator, and humanitarian coordinator in the United Nations Mission in South Sudan, or UNMIS, and chief of staff of the United Nations Integrated Mission in Timor-Leste. He's also served with the United Nations in Georgia, the Russian Federation, and Switzerland. And we're really grateful to Toby for taking time out of his very busy, busy schedule to, to join us today. So thank you, Toby. Um, to my left is thank Joe you. Reed, who's my co-editor for this edition and author, co-author of an article, and the co-chair of the Lake Chad Basin Working Group in Washington, D.C., where she works with CARE USA as a global advocacy advisor. Jo began working on the displacement crisis in northeast Nigeria in May 2014 as the West Africa Regional Analyst at the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center in Geneva. And at IDMC, she led research and analysis on the Boko Haram crisis. From IDMC, she joined the OCHA office in Nigeria as a humanitarian affairs officer, where she served as the OCHA focal point for protection of civilians and humanitarian access. Since leaving OCHA in February 2016, Jo's continued her research and writing about the displacement crisis in Northeast Nigeria and became co-chair of the Lake Chad Basin Working Group in May 2017. And joining us, we hope, at some point by phone line from Rome, is Chitra Nagarajan. She was the senior advisor leading on CIVIC, the, the Center for Civilians in Conflict, programs in Borno, Northeast Nigeria. And we were hoping that Chitra was going to be with us today, but there were various issues with her, her travel permissions, so she wasn't able to, to make it in person. But uh, we're trying to get her by phone line. So um, the programs there are supporting civil-military relations, training, research, and advocacy to prevent and address civilian harm in the ongoing conflict. And Chitra has specialist knowledge and experience of peace and security, gender and human rights and humanitarian law, having spent almost 15 years working in programming, policy, and advocacy in a whole range of, of countries. Um, and before joining CIVIC, Chitra worked for the Nigeria Stability and Reconciliation Program, the Gender Action for Peace and Security, International Alert, and, and UNIFEM, which is now UN Women. And last but not least on my right is John Bilo, and he's the Director of Adaptive Programs at the IRC, um, International Rescue Committee, and leads the organization's efforts to become more adaptive. He founded and co-led the ADAPT collaboration with Mercy Corps and co-wrote the Adapting Aid Report. John also currently serves as a deputy director of the newly established Humanitarian Learning Center, which is a collaboration between the IRC, the Institute of Development Studies, and Crown Agents. And he previously was the IRC's deputy regional director for West Africa. And John has 16 years of experience working in and supporting programs in about 19 countries across four continents. Pretty impressive. So 
without further ado, we'd like to play Jan Eglin's video message for you, and then we're going to move into a discussion with our panelists. So could we have the video, please? Thank you very much for allowing me to speak to this important ODI humanitarian exchange on the Lake Chad crisis. Uh, I uh, am very happy to see that my good friend uh, Toby Lanza will be speaking at the event along with colleagues from IRC and CARE that are very active in the theatre of operations. I came just back myself from uh, Madiguri, in the provincial capital of Borno State, and I was also in Munguno, a, a small uh, border town in the extreme north of this war-torn part of Nigeria. And I have four impressions, uh, strong impressions, uh, with me back. The first one is that civilians are again increasingly targeted. Every single day when we were there, there were reports of attack somewhere within Borno State, and it was always and uniformly against the civilian populations. Uh, so that leads to my second point. It's not yet possible for the internally displaced people, 1.7 million or so, uh, nor for, mo for most of the refugees to return. They're simply too scared to return to their ancestral land. We did a survey, uh, NRC, with the REACH initiative and DRC, we surveyed 3,400 households. It represents 27,000 people. It's the biggest and most representative survey of its kind. The overwhelming majority, well over 80%, said that this is not the time to return because it's not safe to return. A majority said they would be willing and interested uh, to return when the time is ripe and when it is safe. I think this is a very strong signal, both to the government and to us as humanitarian actors, that we have to plan for a, a, a better and safer framework of, uh, of, of returns. I met, a, uh, I met very many families, uh, and it st stuck to me especially what one elderly widow told me. She had come to Munguno town with her two widowed daughters, uh, both of her uh, sons-in-law had been killed by the Boko Haram. She said, I want to return. Uh, I have land there. There are houses or there were houses that were torched there, but I will go back home when the elders in my community return, when the local authorities return, when there is some law and order, and when there is a school for uh, my children and grandchildren. And none of this is there at the moment. My uh, third point is also connected to this. The protection crisis is now much larger than the assistance crisis. A lot has happened, thanks to the people in the panel, among others, in the last 12, 18 months. A, 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 an, an epic famine 
was looming. Uh, there was not uh, a, a large assistance program at all. Now, millions have been received by assistance. Uh, the, the humanitarian community, so-called, has gone from, uh, from a, a very small one in uh, Maliguri and in the provincial towns just a year ago to, I think, uh, around 500 international staff and thousands and thousands of local uh, good and courageous field workers. But we're still not able to protect people outside of the towns, outside of the urban areas. Mungono town in the, in the north is a place with a trench around it. And beyond the trench, it's sort of lawlessness. It's, it's sort of uh, the, the Wild West uh, beyond belief, really. It's not safe. So protection crisis has to be addressed and it has to be addressed in a very robust uh, dialogue with, uh, with all the power and influence in the, in the region, first and foremost, uh, local and, and, and national governments. And then final uh, point is that the durable solutions that we as humanitarians should seek along with the development partners have to be planned carefully now. We have to define what is really voluntary return, how, what is assisted and protected and monitored returns, how can livelihoods be created and nurtured and maintained, how can there be schools and healthcare in places where there is nothing but torched houses at the, mo uh, at the moment. So I wish you all the best in discussing this at this important event. to set the scene. And as Jan said, although a lot has been done and many more agencies engaged over the last 12 to 18 months, um, I don't mind telling you that when we were advertising this event, some of the feedback we got from people was, well, I'm sorry, I, I can't come because it's not a priority for us at the moment. So that's why we've also called it a forgotten crisis. And that only serves to uh, re-emphasize that. Now, I'd, I'd like to, to turn to, uh, to Toby, um, who wrote the lead article for the Humanitarian Exchange. And Toby, in your article, you identified a series of factors which have contributed to the crisis in the Lake Chad Basin, including political and economic marginalization, poor governance, and insecurity. And I, I wondered if you could, you've also talked about in the article why you thought it took so long, but I wondered if you could tell us why do you think it took so long for the international community to acknowledge the gravity of the crisis and, and even longer to engage? Thank you uh, very much. First of all, thank you to uh, you, Wendy, and to all of your colleagues uh, for the chance to participate in this event. I'd love to be in London. Uh, but here I am in Kabul. Uh, but it's it's really good connecting in this way and uh, giving a plug for a region of the world which, as you've just said, is is overlooked. And I, I'm going to talk about that and make a couple of other points. I think one, and, and, and by the way, I'm going to do this in a way which, which may uh, provoke a reaction from the audience. There'll be people who disagree or say, well, that's not good enough. Fine. I, I'm very happy to have a conversation about this. 
uh, and and to generate some some thinking uh, and and to be tested and questioned on on what I'm saying. Uh, it is as I saw it. I think one of you know one one. Let me start with why the response was was so slow. <laughs> I think. If you ask your average person, where is the Lake Chad Basin, they probably scratch their head and, and many wouldn't know. And, and then, you know, if you say, well, where is Nigeria? Well, that's somewhere in Africa. Uh, where is Differ? Uh, fewer takers on that one. Uh, where is Western Chad? Where is the north of Cameroon? Uh, the simple answer is it's a million miles away. Now, it's a million miles away from London and Kabul and Tokyo and other areas, um, but it's even a million miles away from Niamey, capital of Niger. It's a million miles away uh, from Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. And when I say that, I mean it's a million miles away for the policymakers and the people who have got their, their hands on resources. And in that regard, I think uh, it's it's a million miles away politically. If you were to go to Cameroon, uh, uh, I'm I'm not at all convinced that uh, President Bia is particularly concerned about the welfare of uh, people of Cameroon living in the far north of of the country. There are political reasons for that. So, you know, figuratively, literally, it is a million miles away. I think another reason, and this is more inward looking perhaps, is uh, you know whether you're working for CARE or working for UNICEF or working for uh, uh, ECHO, you're busy and you're busy with the crisis of the day. Uh, I imagine right now lots of people in capitals and lots of people in aid agencies are busy with the Rohingya crisis. And uh, a few months ago, they would have been busy with this one uh, for a short time, perhaps. And at the same time, Syria has been on the boil for so long. And if you look back over the last 10 years, typically there will be two, three, perhaps four big crises, which really um, consume, I think is the word, consume almost all of our attention uh, and, and, and that's the people who, who practice this profession, who uh, stand for uh, uh, boys and girls, women and men who don't have a voice and who, who are really stuck in the middle of a conflict or in the middle of, uh, of, of a natural disaster. Going on, <coughs> I think there was a very comfortable excuse in the case of the Lake Chad Basin amongst policymakers and even within aid agencies that, oh, this is Nigeria, this is an oil-rich country, lots of resources, why me, why us? And I think that there's a, there's a, a real hole in that argument. Um, just after I was engaged uh, uh, in uh, the middle of 2015, uh, oil production in Nigeria plummeted right at the same time that the price of oil or petroleum plummeted. And uh, Nigeria's treasury was, was verging on empty. And the IMF at one stage said, this is a country that can barely pay salaries, let alone uh, engage and handle a, a crisis uh, of the, the scale that we were 
witnessing in the Northeast. Um, and my final point is that, you know, if you happen to be working for the UN or an NGO in a country like Nigeria, well, the chances are that you went there with a development agenda. You didn't necessarily go there with an agenda to engage in relief or protecting people who, as Jan just described so ably, uh, are being attacked. You're just not that person who would call attention to that issue. Uh, and so I think those, those are some of the reasons why the response uh, was slow and to a certain extent may still be so. Uh, my second point, how much time have I got, Wendy? Before I embark? Yeah, yeah so two or three more minutes. Okay. My, right. So my, 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 my second point is, okay, now, now what? You know, how do we, how do we fix this? And that's a very comfortable question. People look at us, we talk about humanitarian crises, and I actually think we need to, we need to change the parameters of that question. Um, we will never fix it. And I actually would suggest to some that we not call this a humanitarian crisis because the crisis, the drivers of this, are, as I describe in the article, marginalization, poor governance, climate change, uh, violent extremism, abject poverty, uh, demographic expansion, unlike that, uh, uh, is, is being witnessed almost anywhere else. You know, to fix this, we need to have people who can address the main drivers which are creating suffering. Um, to fix this, we need to tackle uh, the guys with the guns uh, who are attacking civilians, as Jan just said. Now, um, lots of humanitarians will say, well, that's not my job. Uh, well, it's not my job as a humanitarian coordinator to tackle climate change or to address abject poverty, agreed, but it's certainly my job to call attention to the drivers of a crisis and to hold those responsible accountable and to call on them to change their behavior, to invest as a responsible president should in one's people to make sure that resources are allocated to all regions of a country and that no particular region is, is marginalized, et cetera, et cetera. And there, I think there's a massive advocacy role for us as NGOs, as UN agencies, to be far more demanding uh, of the other parts of the international system and of host governments to play their, uh, 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 to do their part and to play their role. Um, and there, I, I would challenge that we have been a little too timid, not only here, but in other contexts. And there are good reasons for that. I'm currently working in a country where we've had 100 attacks on medical facilities in the last uh, nine months. It's, it's absolutely abominable and disgraceful that any, any man with a gun uh, would, would attack a doctor or fire at a patient, but it happens. We have to talk about these things. We have to place this on the agenda uh, and call a spade a spade. My last point is that if we do not, uh, you know, advocate, address the drivers, I guarantee all of you one thing. Uh, we'll be talking about this crisis again in three years' time, in six years' time, in in in. 15 years time, you know, just in the same way that sadly, 
we're still talking about Somalia. Now that, that's, that's a country that went into meltdown in the early 1990s, and here we are. Uh, we'll be talking about South Sudan for years to come, unless in that particular case, you know, we help get boys and girls through quality education, etc. So in, in all of these settings, my biggest fear um, is that we, you know, we, we treat this as, well, we'll do what we can, we'll throw some humanitarian money at it, um, but if we do only that, um, we're, I think, not living up to the real spirit of, of, of people's rights, and we're not really standing with those who have a voice, uh, and, and we need to demand more from many who work in various spheres, uh, whether it's the security front uh, on issues of climate change, uh, eradicating poverty under the banner of the SDGs, etc. So there's some, some food for thought um, for all of you. Uh, Jan mentioned, and I'll finish with this, uh, you know, people aren't ready to return. Well, guess what, Jan? They won't be next year or the year after, or the year after. They won't return. I've been saying this now for nearly four years in various contexts. Generally, very few people ever go home. And so there again, I think the humanitarian ethos should be doing much more to call on actors such as the World Bank to say, aha, well, you've got a million extra people in my doogery. What about water and sanitation, education and health services? so that that city can cope responsibly with what is a new population which is stuck and staying. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. Yeah, it's interesting the, the point about the, the need to attract these to look at some of these difficult issues and attract development funding. There's an interesting article in the exchange by Natalie Roberts from MSF, who talks a little bit about this uh, contradiction, you know, of MSF deciding to raise the alarm um, and portraying this as an acute crisis, which had suddenly developed when they knew that it hadn't, that it had been a longstanding issue, that there were many historical drivers of the current situation, but they felt the only way to draw attention to that was to portray it as a, an acute nutritional crisis. And uh, Natalie says in her article that she thinks that worked, drew attention, and actually brought resources, but that that is the wrong narrative. And so at, at some point, we have to uh, try to reconcile those things. Joe, did you want to comment at all or before I move on? Well, I, I think just to come in on as Toby was uh, mentioning in some of the reasons why we didn't see as much attention um, earlier on in the crisis when we had, um, I mean, the National Commission for Refugees said there were 1.5 million IDPs in February of 2014. Um, and so when we think of how long it took us to get to this discussion and, and the arrival and the scale up of a lot of UN offices in 2015, I think that's actually quite a long period of time to contend with. And I would just add to um, Toby's observations that I think within the region, including with the UN regional office for um, Western Central Africa, they were not only dealing with the Ebola crisis, but of course um, the Central Africa Republic crisis, um, at the refugee dimensions of which were affecting and, and continue to affect some of the countries in the region, notably Cameroon. 
Um, and I think that it, you know, in, in addition, uh, not instead of uh, the reasons that, that Toby has pointed to, I think that there, there was um, not so much a lack of strategic capacity, but perhaps too much going on at the same time for the scale of the crisis in um, all around the Lake Chad Basin, and, and particularly the crisis in northeast Nigeria as information slowly became available. I think uh, the crisis was having to compete with the sheer numbers and the scale of not only the, the developing and the intensifying crisis in the Central African Republic, um, but of course the Ebola crisis, which in 2014 I think had a profound effect on um, the humanitarian system as a whole, and of course the impact that's had on WHO um, has continued with the, the change management process. It's had a, a huge impact there, but I think it really was a seismic moment for us in the humanitarian community. As someone who just left South Sudan in early 2014, um, to start working on a crisis in Nigeria and find that we were talking about numbers above a million of IDPs, and we didn't have registered, uh, formalized, that is to say, IDP camps in place, was very shocking um, and, and I think it has taken a number of years mm. for the sort of relative numbers uh, to even out in, in that way to, to get that attention. Mm. Joe, did you want to comment? Well, I'd, I'd echo all that um, Joe's John, just sorry. said. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think um, just kind of reflecting on uh, my role during that time, uh, mobilising the the financial resources and the human resources to respond to all of those different crises at the same time is really considerable, and so that was a, a big issue. Um, as, as, as Toby was speaking, I was um, thinking about this crisis and how it's evolved, and, and back in 2013 when um, IRC started uh, programming in, in DIFA, it was an invisible crisis. It, we're now calling it a, an overlooked crisis, and um, as Toby made reference to Somalia, it seems as though there's a risk it will become a forgotten crisis. Mm. Joe, um, I want to move to you now. Um, your article that you wrote for us focuses on sexual violence and the Boko Haram crisis. And I wondered if you could tell us about the, the impact of this violence and the challenges of delivering protection and support for women and girls in northeast Nigeria, especially in camp-like settings. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, I, I would really point everyone towards a, a fine article by Luana Giardinelli, um, who is a, a clinical um, psychologist who is working with the IOM Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Program uh, in northeast Nigeria. And, and this was a, a program funded by USAID at the same time that they were developing the displacement tracking matrix that was originally began working um, with communities in uh, Chibuk were, of course, very impacted by the abduction of a whole class um, of, of girls at the secondary school there, um, and, and then moved out to, to work with women uh, who were in IDP camps in Adamawa and in Borno states. And, and as her article documents, um, the effects on men, women, boys and girls were felt differently. And there was an, an overriding focus, perhaps, on the loss of identity, and particularly the displacement from livelihoods issues that were affecting men. Whereas the issues that were affecting women, um, which were in many cases exacerbated by camp policies that involved separation of families um, as, as they were gender segregated uh, at that time and, and continue to be in some cases now, 
uh, that the distress caused by women who were separated from, in many cases, their male children of six or seven years old, um, and in cases where families and households had already been separated during displacement journey journeys, um, perhaps during security screening, um, whether male family members uh, perhaps were detained, uh, or in cases where uh, male family members had fled earlier across the border to Cameroon, for example, uh, or did he be killed by Boko Haram, the breakdown of family and, and more broadly community protection mechanisms caused a huge amount of distress to women. And um, I think a lot of the issues that we've seen in camp-like situations, and, and we do use that term camp-like because very few of these camps were formal settings uh, for a number of years. People were living uh, in church compounds, uh, people were living in, in primary schools, and uh, in, in many cases, even within host communities, people would form an impromptu camp setting. Um, and I think that the exploitation, um, as, as well as, as the broader violence uh, and the impact of those unmet needs metastasized together, um, and I think created really big challenges for agencies that were working in the protection sector to go into these environments where we didn't have basic needs provided for. And of course, um, in terms of psychological first aid, it is very important to make sure that you know, you're not just providing counseling and psychosocial support, you are providing food and water because people need a level of stability um, in, in order to better process and, and cope with traumatic events. And as a result, I think for protection actors and uh, you know, the conversations that I was party to in the protection working group from 2014, 2015 through to 2016, I think we really faced challenges in not only accessing information uh, and, and regular access to a lot of these camp-like settings, but the, the magnitude of the focus on water and sanitation in these sites uh, made it very difficult to, to push through and, and to make the case that psychosocial support and protection interventions were also a priority. The, such was the competition mm. between the different priorities and the sort of ring fencing of the life-saving sectors of which protection wasn't considered to be one. Is this why humanitarian agencies didn't um, respond to the protection crisis? Um, before the scale-up of Boko Haram violence? I mean, despite the fact that there were 1.5 million displaced mm. I mean, at the I time? I think if we look earlier in the crisis, before the scale-up that took place from April 2014 onwards, there weren't many protection-mandated agencies with a capacity to deliver services in the northeast Nigeria. I mean, throughout 2014, um, we faced difficulties even accessing information that didn't come through perhaps church networks. Uh, when MSF established an office, information became a little stronger. Um, the, I think the challenge of understanding what was going on in order to put together an analysis and, and develop plans for assistance was really a challenge there. I also think there was um, a lack of clarity 
on where the protection risks were coming from. We were aware, of course, um, of the protection risks related to Boko Haram, but before the scale-up in 2014, uh, where we saw the abduction of girls, for example, um, Boko Haram were targeting boys' schools, they were targeting um, s ordinary civilians from Maiduguri, the city that had pushed them out, um, earlier on. Uh, there was uh, a lot of targeting of Christian communities, but in the way that we analyze and understand the conflict dynamics in late 2014, um, with the surge of Boko Haram through in, in Borno State in, in northern Adamawa and eastern Yobe, where they put together the caliphate and, and declared that for some amount of time, the, the patterns weren't as clear earlier in the crisis, mm. and I think it, it was yet another obstacle to agencies and protection agencies understanding the scale of that crisis. But I think when we see, at the point at which it became a food security crisis, and um, the Kadra Amunize in, in November 2015 had a figure of nearly 50,000 people in IPC phase five, and I think from November 2015 onwards, we had far more of a food security-focused lens on the crisis. And that's when we got more attention. And so whilst I wholeheartedly agree um, with Jan's statement that this is a protection crisis, this is not the first time that it has been a protection crisis. And I do worry that part of the roots of why it's an overlooked crisis is the protection element within it. And uh, I, do, I do think that it will continue to be a food security and nutrition crisis, particularly if forced returns take place to areas where people can't access basic services or humanitarian assistance. Uh, but I, I wonder if we've learnt sufficiently from the experiences of 2013 to 2015 that we will be able to maintain even the profile the crisis currently has in 2017 in order to address um, the roots of the crisis, as Toby said, and, and the protection elements of the crisis. Mm -hmm. um, before I move on, uh, Toby, did you have any comments uh, on what Joe's said just now? You don't have to, just um, giving you the opportunity. On the very no, then carry on, crack on, and I'll come in later. Signal. <laughs> um, I, I just wondered, Joe, also before I move on, and we don't have Chitra on the line yet. Oh, that's a shame. Because um, you said that, I think you said in your article that there has been an increase in gender based violence programming in Northeast Nigeria, but you know, there's still a protection gap, of you, as you've said, especially for women and girls in these complex situations. I mean, what do you think is the way forward? I mean, what, how can we tackle this systemic problem? Because I think part of what you highlight in your article is there is this kind of systemic issue here where there isn't enough food, for example, um, or women can't provide, women and girls can't provide enough food, and so then they're vulnerable and they're exploited and it, it goes on. Can you, do you have any ideas? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, and of course this was a key point of discussion at the Oslo Humanitarian Conference on the Lake Chad Basin, which uh, was held in, in February of this year, is that we need an immediate timeline uh, for the transition from military to civilian coordination of the humanitarian response, I think, and, and the leadership from the mandated agencies within the Nigerian government. Um, because I, I think we do struggle at the moment to line up the work that is taking place in areas under civilian control, including Maiduguri, 
um, and the work that takes place with the, the various civilian authorities, including the National Emergency Management Agency, their state-level counterparts, as well as the, the presidential um, committee on, on Northeast Initiatives and the Victim Support Fund, um, with then the Nigerian military, who are, of course, responsible for the coordination of the majority of humanitarian assistance in Borno State, um, because the, the camps, as, as Jan mentioned, in uh, provincial uh, towns within Borno State are not yet secure enough to transfer to civilian control. Um, and as Natalie has pointed out in her article, uh, as well as a number of others, uh, we rely on civil military coordination mechanisms in order to engage with the military on issues of security and humanitarian access. But we don't actually have those mechanisms in case for co in, in, in place for coordinating with the military on issues of humanitarian assistance because we have those structures in place for civilian authorities. Um, it, it's a shame that, that uh, Chitra wasn't able to join because, of course, this is a, a situation that the Center for Civilians in Conflict know very well because they provide human rights training and capacity building for the Nigerian military. Um, through a DFID-supported project, which doesn't include training on humanitarian principles um, and international standards related to camp coordination and camp management, for example, um, distribution of food assistance. Um, and so, I mean, I think that that has been the very clear message that has come forward from humanitarian agencies throughout the course um, of 2017 and, and, and was raised as early as 2015, in, in November 2015, when we became aware that these camps were being established inside military barracks or near military barracks, and we foresaw a lot of the complications that arose with insufficient basic services in place and the public health emergency that would take place, as well as the extreme nutrition and food security emergency. Um, but without that being a part of the humanitarian coordination structures in place with the host government, it's not possible to address them in a, in a joined-up way. Mm. Thanks, Joe. Um, I think we do have Chitra online now, which is wonderful. So she's going to join us by phone. Is that right? Uh, okay. Chitra, welcome. Hello. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm very sorry I couldn't be there in person to join you all. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I know you're... Um, either in an airport or you're en route to, uh, to a place where you can, uh, you can recover after your trip. But uh, thank you so much for making the time. Um, Chitra, just in case our connection ends up being a bit uh, sporadic, I want to get right into my questions for you, if that's okay. Um, sure. Okay, so I, I wanted to start with um, your article, which w I thought was really interesting. Um, in it, you outlined three main ways in which the Nigerian armed forces are failing to protect communities living through the conflict in northeast Nigeria. And I wondered if you could tell us what these are and why the Nigeria armed forces aren't doing more to protect civilians. Um, and also, what needs to be done to ensure that civilian protection becomes a priority for the Nigerian military? Sure. Well, thank you very much, Wendy. Um, first of all, to say that this analysis is based on research that we did back in 2015, as well as work that we've been doing country since then. And for us, the three main um, ways um, in which the Nigerian military could improve or the gaps that we see at present are, number one, 
um, that the Nigerian Armed Forces can and should do more to protect civilians from harm from armed opposition groups. Um, in reality, we've heard lots of stories of um, the military not being able to protect civilians from violence, um, in some cases uh, leaving civilians to fend for themselves um, when an armed opposition group is in the area or an attack is imminent. Um, the second way uh, or the second gap that we see is um, the failure to prevent collateral damage during their military operations, causing both direct and indirect harm. And the third way is direct targeting of civilians themselves. Um, and I know that we are aware of some of the human rights violations and abuses that have been reported by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and others, um, of sexual violence against women and girls, detention without trial, um, harassment, destruction of property, and the indiscriminate targeting of particular groups, um, such as young men in particular. And I think, I mean, to answer the second part of your question, which is why are the armed forces not doing more to protect civilians, I think we need to start off by um, acknowledging what they are doing to protect civilians. Um, so there's increasingly an acknowledgement at all ranks of the Nigerian military that this is important and this is something that the armed forces need to commit to doing and figure out what that means in practice. So we have a draft civilian protection policy at the moment awaiting signature um, from the presidency. Um, we have the Nigerian armed forces asking us as civic for help and assistance in terms of how to integrate civilian protection into the training offered by the training schools and colleges. And we also have a revision of the rules of engagement to look at and integrate issues of international humanitarian law um, and really kind of pass that down to the soldiers. Um, but I think one of the biggest challenges to the Nigerian military in Northeast Nigeria is that of distinction. Um, and this is why our 2015 research is entitled When You Can't See the Enemy, Civilians Become the Enemy. And I think that there is a real issue there about the Nigerian state not being able to distinguish between members of armed opposition groups and civilians. Um, and we have to remember that unlike in other situations, what we're seeing in Northeast Nigeria is very new for Nigeria. Um, so Nigeria hasn't had this scale of violent conflict for very many years. Um, and it is difficult to see who members of armed opposition groups are, who, members, who civilians are. And I think the Nigerian military is coming to grips with what that means in the context of Northeast Nigeria. Um, and in terms of what the Nigerian military needs to do, we would say really looking at um, making sure there's a commitment that is translated into practice at all levels of the Nigerian um, armed forces. So that includes um, integration of civilian protection into training that's offered into um, pre-deployment instructions, really kind, kind of grappling with this principle of distinction and what that means in practice in Northeast Nigeria. Um, one of the biggest um, issues that we see when it comes to the interaction between the military um, operational in the Northeast and the civilian population 
is the Commission of Sexual Violence, Exploitation and Abuse by the military. And I'm sure Joe has talked about this a bit already, um, but there needs to be a lot more done to really translate the prohibitions that we already have in Nigerian law, for example, in the Armed Forces Act, into reality. Um, and we know that all um, Nigerian um, all Nigerians going to serve in UN peacekeeping operations abroad um, get training on sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, but actually, that doesn't necessarily apply to um, soldiers deployed within the country itself. Um, and in my experience, um, the institutional culture around this is a bit uneven. Um, so whereas people will say that sexual exploitation is, is not allowed, in practice, um, we do find a fair level of acceptance and tolerance that this will happen. Um, and so for me, that needs to change. And then finally, I would say we need to really look, or the military needs to look, at how it can rebuild trust and confidence amongst the civilian population. Um, to a large extent, um, the situation today is better than it has been in the past. And so civilians themselves will talk about how the military has changed compared to two or three years ago. But there needs to be a lot more proactive community engagement. And by that, I don't mean just um, interacting with traditional and religious leaders, um, but with a wide cross-section of the community, um, people from different ethno-linguistic groups and women as well as men. Thanks, Chitra. Um, just quickly, I, because we're running a bit short of time and I want to um, give John a chance here. Um, I just wondered if you, because you've been leading on civics work with the Nigerian military to improve protection for civilians caught up in conflict, I wondered if you could just briefly talk about some of the approaches that you've used, because you're really at the, um, at the front line here. And, and what impact do you think these are having? Um, well, I would say that our approach really is three-pronged. So we work at the um, the policy level. Um, so, for example, um, the Nigerian military asked us for assistance in drafting or helping them to draft a civilian protection policy. Um, I mentioned this earlier. So that's really ensuring or and expressing commitment at the highest levels of both military and um, political levels of commitment to protect civilians and implement this commitment in practice. The second is looking at the institutional um, and integrating um, an awareness of what civilian protection looks like in the course of operations through um, the training that soldiers receive. And as I, as I may have mentioned before, we're in partnership uh, with the training schools and colleges to, to do this and recently held uh, a successful curriculum development consultation with them. Um, so that should be rolling out in the, the coming months. And the third area is really um, focusing on working with um, with the military operational in the Northeast Theatre. And by this, I mean um, running workshops and training for them, um, looking at what civilian protection means in practice in the, um, in the context of the Northeast operations, um, but also working with civilians in the same localities as the, um, the soldiers that we're working with. 
So we provide training to civilian communities on self-protection, so what they can do to protect themselves um, in case of attack. And then finally, we do work bringing civilians and security forces, that's primarily the military, but also the police, the civil defense corps, um, immigration, and any other security agencies that are operational in that place, together in civil military forums to discuss um, issues of threats to human security that the communities themselves have identified. And the aim of this is really to um, have a two-way dialogue between civilians and security forces, which doesn't happen otherwise, and then really engage in action planning to see what can be done about some of the issues that are raised. So, for example, if one of the issues, one of the issues that has been raised is the use of force uh, to control crowds during food distribution. And so we engaged in a process where the security agencies and the civilians present sat down together to work out what um, a better scenario could be to ensure crowd management, which didn't lead to injury and loss of life um, on the part of the civilian population, caused by, um, I would say, the inability of um, actors involved in food distribution to be able to um, undertake crowd control. Thank you very much. Now, I don't know if you'll be able to stay on the line. I'll, I'll try, stay online, and um, let, let's see how well the connection holds up. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, John, <laughs> um, in 2014, I understand that IRC was one of the first agencies to open operations in Mubi, um, responding to IDPs from Borno State and Northern Adamoa State. I mean, was this decision motivated by the response to Nigerian refugees by IRC offices in other countries in the Lake Chad region? Yes, absolutely, yes. That, it ties in with the, the evolution of the response. Um, IRC initially set up um, in uh, Niger, in the southeastern Difa, mm -hmm. and then recognising the needs both of um, Nigerian refugees fleeing from Borno, but also uh, Nigerian uh, displaced people, uh, decided to intervene in uh, northeast Nigeria, and then latterly also in the northern part of Cameroon as well. Because I don't think there were many other agencies who were there, if any, were there? Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I mean, initially it was quite a, an invisible crisis. Yes. Um, yeah. And then um, happily in um, more recent times, last year or so, there's been a, a real um, proliferation of different agencies intervening, which is great. Mm, mm. And I, I know, I mean, you've, we've talked a bit about your role in the adaptive uh, programming and some of the, the research that you're doing as well. And your colleague, Matthias Meyer, um, wrote an article for us based on, I think, a brief that you actually put together initially and on his own experience, which speaks to IRC's experience of using an adaptive program approach to overcome some of the challenges of working in DIFA in Niger. And I wondered if you could describe for us what some of the distinguishing features of adaptive humanitarian programming are and, and how it's been used in the IRC differ response. Sure. Um, so for the first part of your question, um, in terms of uh, looking at adaptive humanitarian programs more generally, I'd say they're characterized um, firstly by building flexibility into the design and resourcing of an intervention. Um, secondly, they have a strong focus on learning. 
Um, so ongoing analysis of um, different uh, data such as security data, project monitoring data, uh, client and partner feedback all feed into um, decisions about whether or not to adapt. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, a um, critical piece is um, having um, implementation which is agile. Um, and that doesn't mean you just change on a whim. It's having that data analysis really driving uh, changes, whether they be iterative improvements or more substantive shifts in program implementation. Mm. And I suppose your your donors and your, your staff and everyone has to understand this approach and, and be prepared to actually use it. Absolutely. So the research that we conducted identified a number of different enablers of um, uh, adaptive programs. One is having trusting and, and flexible partnerships uh, with donors, but also with local um, agencies and, and importantly, local authorities. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's about having those uh, that flexibility of, of funding and, uh, and remit to be able to change your approach. Um, but then also having a culture and a leadership which um, values data, which uh, permits, creates an authorising environment for changes to be made is, is really crucial. Mm. And, and how did this work in DIFA? How did you adapt, or yes, how did you adapt it or use it in, uh, in DIFA? Um, okay, so um, DIFA is, um, as many as you I'm sure know, a, a horrendously complex context. But I think um, Matthias, the country director for Niger, um, developed a very um, simple, straightforward approach, which was, firstly, um, they need to really understand and monitor the changing situation and then be able to quickly respond to the, the needs of those affected by Boko Haram violence. Um, I think a, a really important reflection early on from the team was that to be effective, they really needed to be able to um, analyse the changing dynamics of the situation um, and they did this by building a, uh, a, a great partnership with a local organisation um, who jointly established an information network. Joe spoke earlier of the challenges of information. And I think this was one of the, the workarounds that the team there came up with. Um, so they, they uh, worked to establish uh, protection monitors in different communities along uh, the border with Nigeria. Um, they also um, recognised the importance that they couldn't just sit on this information. They needed to act and also advocate very quickly. They needed to act quickly because um, the information they were receiving was about life-threatening uh, situations. But they also needed to advocate, and that's both to, um, to the donors to enable effective resourcing, but also to other organisations to ensure that there's a, a coordinated response. Um, and, and so what they did was building off this information network, uh, they were able to rapidly deploy multi-sectoral needs assessment teams, and then that information was shared with uh, UNOCHA, who were able to coordinate a more effective uh, response. Um, the third piece, I think, which was a real distinguishing feature of um, the, uh, the IRC's program in, in DIFA, was that they, amidst the crisis, they were able to pause and reflect. And that's not easy to do. No. Um, I was fortunate to be with um, the, the Niger team in uh, early 2014 when they were conducting some uh, scenario planning of, of how the situation could evolve. And they were able to identify four different scenarios, uh, three of which actually came to pass in the, the, the coming six months. Um, but this wasn't an academic exercise. They were using this um, anticipatory information to really inform their preparations and, and how they had evolved the programming. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, really interesting, and I urge you to read that article because it, it really uh, is an interesting one. Um, before I open up the floor uh, to the rest of the audience, Toby, do you have any other points or reflections you'd like to make now? No, let's go to the audience. Great. Okay, well, um, we've, got, we've had an interesting, some interesting input from our panelists, uh, Jan's video message, which I think really set the scene. And now I'd like to open the floor to the audience in the room and online for questions or, or comments and further discussion. Any, any questions or comments? Yes, I'll take three or two or three. And if you could identify yourself in any organizational affiliation, and if you're directing it towards a specific panelist or not. Thank you. Hello, good afternoon. Um, my name is Chidan Warnus. I'm, uh, I'm a blogger. I write about uh, the late child crisis, and I'm also reservist with the Defense uh, Cultural Specialist Unit. So I look upon this with my two heads, the military head and the, the maybe the Nigerian security head. And uh, first, before I, uh, I launch into any comments to a question, I want to just first thank you know, all the international agencies who've, who've come to help um, in the Northeast, because you've done an excellent job. And it's acknowledged on the, uh, you know, on the ground as well. So you know, in the event that I come across as excessively harsh, that, that, that gratitude is there and it permeates you know, with all Nigerians. Uh, the first thing is that um, I think, um, and maybe this comes as a comment more than a question, but the thing is that I think the biggest thing, and it's been mentioned, but it's kind of been mentioned as an aside, is that the protection element is, is the key. And that, you know, a lot of these things, um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the international agencies need to plan for this and for that, but the key element is that this is a war. And the, the key driver of this conflict is not, all the other things were, there was always a famine in Niger, and there's always been a famine in Difa, and there's always been a famine in Chad. The bonus state has been what has maybe prevented them from falling into crisis from the agricultural output. The war has changed that. So until that war ends, until the Nigerian military defeats Boko Haram, it doesn't matter what international agencies do, um, the, the war needs to end. And without, and it's, it's, it's slightly curious to me that in a discussion like this, there is no representation from the, the governments in the regions, because they are the ones who will end this war, and they are the ones who will then create the space for local and international agencies to solve the problem. And the second thing, just to, to maybe take, I think most of what uh, Mr. Lanza said was, was spot on, but I, I kind of take Askins with one of his comments in that people won't go home. People desperately want to go home. Uh, from everybody, all the IDPs I've met, the people who I know who, uh, um, who are in that area, everybody wants to go home. Whether they're able to or not, some will, some, Quite a few that I know have tried to go home to you know, work their farms, go and log and all that stuff and got killed, but people are still going back. Once that, again, it goes back to, once that security space is there, people will inevitably go back. Um, and sorry, another point I wanted to take to task was again about funding in terms of um, how lo the local area fund is funded. You know, Nigeria has a fairly well worked out formula for how each state gets money from the central government. And Borno State gets his, is, you know, based on head of population and uh, the number of local government areas. So the point is not that there's no funding from the federal government, it's how that funding is dispersed by the state government and the local governments. And I think that's been one of the keys. Borno State is huge. So it will take a fairly competent and innovative leader to be able to disperse funds accurately. And I don't think that those adjectives, you know, uh, could be used for any Nigerian politician, to be honest. So it's, it's, it's something that's, that I think is, Looking to say that the federal government should put more funds into it, yes, there should be emergency funding, but all you'll be doing is increasing the pot for people to seal from. So it's about how that funding is brought in and you know, the oversight that is put on top of it. 
And I think, because I'm rabbiting on, I'm just going to touch on one final point, which is gender. Um, again, it was uh, mentioned uh, by Ms. Reed about, um, um, slightly mentioned, but uh, as an aside, um, a lot of the focus is on the, the violence against females, uh, which is key and which is, um, is, is, is terrible. But I think that the key demographic here is boys, boys and young men. This war is a war of boys and young men. They are the drivers. They are the, it's the disenfranchisement and desperation of young men and boys that has driven this conflict. And a lot of the focus is on females and, and um, how the crisis has affected females when the key, key victims have actually been young boys. Young boys have been burnt alive in their schools, have been kidnapped. I mean, more boys were kidnapped from Damasak than have been kidnapped from Chibok or anywhere else. Whole villages in Cameroon have been depopulated of young boys. And until we focus on, you know, what are the key, as a, I'm an, I'm as an African male, the key, the key problem for young, especially young, and I'm going to use the word peasants, I'm sorry if this sounds offensive, but young uh, rural African males is getting married. It's very expensive. So the kidnappings and all of that stuff is, 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 a, is a continuation of a problem that maybe needs to be addressed, again, internally by the Nigerian government and Nigerian society. But the focus on you know, the violence against females and the effects against females you know, kind of obscures what is the key driver of this crisis, which is not just poor governance, but how poor governance disenfranchises and affects males in a patriarchal male-dominated society where a man without status is nothing. Thank you very much. Other questions, comments? Really? <laughs> Let me see if we have anything from our online audience. I don't, nothing's come through. We're having a technical difficulty. Oh, right, thank you. Um, this is a question from John Borton, who many of you may know. Uh, for the last two to three years, Nigerian nationals have consistently formed the largest national group of irregular migrants arriving by sea in Italy. What proportion of this irregular migrant flow does the panel think is made up of those displaced by the protection crisis in northeast Nigeria? So that's an interesting question, not an easy one, I would imagine, to answer. Um, any other comments or questions from the audience? Ah, oh, Martin. The microphone's just coming. Well, um, thanks. I'm, I'm reluctant, really, to ask a question about an area that I know so little about. But I'm particularly interested at the moment in the role, and um, yeah, in the role of local organisations. So I was interested, John, when you uh, referred to the local organisations. I think in in Niger, um, in the global sense, we're talking about the new way of working. Um, is there is that having an impact in the kind of way that you're working with, with local organizations in Niger or in the other countries? Thank you. Let's start with those. And I'm going to go to, to Toby first. Toby, go ahead. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Can you? Good. Yes. Okay, uh, three points, if I may. Um, uh, the gentleman who took the floor uh, is um, confusing two things, if I may. Uh, one is people's desire to go home. That is one issue. And I would certainly agree with him that when one asks displaced people, would you like to go home? 
the vast majority will always say yes, it's about memories, it's about nostalgia, it's attachment to land, it's where ancestors are buried. There is certainly a desire to go home. Um, that's one thing. But one shouldn't confuse that with the likelihood that one will go home. That's a very different matter. <coughs> we, excuse me, we know from research that for every year of displacement, the likelihood of return decreases by about 9.5%. So that means that after a decade of displacement, what you're really looking at is about 39% of those who have been displaced who are still likely to go home. And there are lots and lots of reasons for that. Uh, people will have had children, they will have uh, set up shop elsewhere, they, they're not just sitting in a camp and waiting for a handout. Um, you know, they're getting on with life. And then to put that down and say, aha, that life we had 10 years ago is maybe still there, let's go and rebuild it. That's actually a very big ask. So that's, <coughs> excuse me, that's my first comment. Second comment, the question about migrants. Um, the answer to that is very few, but more and more. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, IOM and others have been tracking this. Uh, we know that most of the Nigerians arriving on the shores of uh, uh, Italy um, or elsewhere in Europe are uh, from the north of Nigeria, but it's west of Borno. Uh, it tends to be from states such as Kano. Um, sadly, it tends to be a lot of women who are being trafficked. But so it's not directly related to the violence which has been taking place in the Northeast. However, uh, I would be willing to say that uh, there'll be an increasing proportion of people who will say, I've had enough of this, information travels fast, I'll try my luck in, a, in another way. <laughs> on, on the third issue of, of local, um, actually I meant to mention this earlier, so I'd like to thank your participants in London for raising it. Um, really, I mean, this is part of the solution. It's also part of a slightly more humble approach and a deferential recognition that, um, you know, we keep saying this, the first responders are the local communities, they are the neighbours, etc. Uh, there is no greater generosity anywhere on earth than a family in Differ that welcomes a refugee from, from Borno State. We're talking about the poorest of the poor who open up their hearts and their homes, people. Um, and, you know, the solutions have to include uh, helping uh, local people and local institutions um, play a greater role in all of this. So I'd like to thank, uh, I, I, I missed his name, forgive me, but I'd like to thank him for having raised that point. It's Martin Barber. Martin Barber, yeah. Martin, sorry, I should have <laughs> recognized your voice. Great that you're there. Thanks, Toby. Um, I'm going, Chitra, are you still on the line? Yes, I am. Oh, thank you. Um, do you have any responses to make to any of those comments or questions? Yes, I wanted to respond to the point made around um, how the conflict is impacting men and boys as well as women and girls. 
and the ways in which dominant norms of masculinity are driving the conflict in northeast Nigeria. I think we need to look at um, the ways in which the pattern of civilian harm in northeast Nigeria um, is very gendered. So we know that men make up the majority of those who are killed, who are detained by the Nigerian security forces, who are associated with armed opposition groups. And we know that there is a spectrum of association between voluntary to force, um, whereas women are those who are left behind, um, who make up the majority of people who are displaced, um, primarily because the men are no more around. So in many places, um, one of the first things that the armed opposition groups did when they arrived into an area were to kill all the men of fighting age. And by this, I mean um, including boys as young as 9, 10, or 11, up to um, those who are middle-aged. So in many places, you actually only have left there women, girls, young boys, and older people. And I think partly as humanitarians, um, that, that could be one of the reasons why we're really looking at how we deliver for women and girls in a particular situation, because the men and boys who are at risk are not around by the time we get there. Um, and of course, women and girls face um, other risks, particularly um, gender-based violence, as has been mentioned before. Um, I think the, um, the person in the audience made a very interesting point on the ways in which masculinity drives conflict in Northeast Nigeria also. And in a previous role, I did some research looking at the intersections between masculinity, conflict and violence, um, including in Borno. And there we saw, uh, yes, the importance of marriage as a marker of transition to adulthood and the fact that men were not able to get married, um, adding to their sense of frustration, particularly in the context of the inequality that they're seeing around them. Um, we saw the importance of um, being married, uh, being employed and having money in terms of getting societal respect in your community, uh, particularly given that uh, we're living in what is an increasingly consumerist and capitalist society. So I agree that we need to look at the way that masculinity drives conflict and violence in, in Northeast Nigeria. But I would also say that we need to look at the ways in which gender roles for women and girls also drives the conflict. So, for example, we knew in the early days that lots of women joined what was then called the, um, the Utopia movement because of the increased status that they received within the group and the increased access to knowledge, particularly religious knowledge, which had been close to them um, due to dominant social cultural norms um, in the rest of society. Also, the role of economic marginalization. So I spoke to women who had... Um, smuggled um, guns across checkpoints, and this is a time where women were not um, considered suspicious. And in a context where lots of avenues to earning income and livelihoods is close to you because of the patriarchal society in which you live, um, your husband or father has been killed or detained or is just missing, um, and yet you have this group that is offering you, say, 1,500 naira for every gun that you smuggle across a checkpoint, you can see how um, 
women's marginalization and unequal gender power dynamics also feeds into and perpetuates the conflict. Thank you very much, Chitra. Um, oh, sorry, did you, did you have more? No, that's it. Okay. Now, at least. Great. Uh, I'm going to turn to John now. Great, thanks. I'd like to pick up on um, Martin's great comments and also briefly on um, First Gentleman's comment. Um, so uh, Toby put it very eloquently. It's, um, it's the local communities who, out of their generosity, are um, providing that frontline humanitarian response. It's 300,000 people displaced in, uh, in, in DIFA, and it's just incredible, um, the response that local communities have given. In terms of the question about new ways of working, and I think you're touching a little bit on the, the localization theme here, um, IRC is increasingly um, working with uh, local organizations. The organization that we're working with in DIFER is the um, Niger Association for Human Rights. Um, and at their best place to understand the context, they have those established relationships um, and also access as well. So there's a a whole um, range of reasons why um, it makes sense um, to work with local organisations. And of course, there are some risks for those local organisations we need to consider too. Um, I wanted to just um, build a little bit on that first comment that you made um, around um, it's only until um, uh, the Nigerian military defeat Boko Haram that the situation will change. Um, there may be an element of truth to that. I think if we're looking about defeating Boko Haram, we also need to look at some of the underlying causes, um, which makes it attractive for young boys and, and men to, to join Boko Haram. And so in terms of the, the humanitarian imperative for an organisation like IRC to respond, that, that remains. But we also need to really focus on some of the developmental efforts that tie into that to ensure that there is access to education, there are economic opportunities um, and the like. Thanks, John. I'd say, too, that um, when you have a chance to look at the magazine, there are a couple of interesting articles which talk about the federal and state dynamics uh, there, and also one which outlines the evolution of, um, of Boko Haram by, by someone who's written a, a book about that. So it would be interesting to get your feedback on what you think about those. Um, Joe, I'm going to turn to you now. Yeah, certainly. I mean, to to build on the answers that have already been given, I think with regard to the movement of people from Nigeria coming to Europe, I think as we see, um, and it, it's not specific to Nigeria, we could easily be speaking about people from Eritrea, uh, people from Sudan and else. You have to have a phenomenal amount of resources in order to afford to come to Europe. As we see in every context in the world, people who are able to become refugees instead of IDPs do so on the basis of resources. If we look at displacement patterns within Northeast Nigeria during the lifetime of the Boko Haram crisis, the people who left earlier were communities that had resources, predominantly those from market towns, those who had networks elsewhere in Nigeria, those who were employed by the central government or from local administrations. People with resources are able to move. And whilst we look at displacement as a as a vulnerable group. We also see that displacement is in itself a coping strategy and for many people there's a great number of risks that come from not moving. Um, and so the way I would tie this in just to speak about who is coming to Europe from Nigeria um, and, and without getting too far into the details of, of different parts of the country, um, I would just say it's people with resources. 
is it people who have been forcibly displaced from agricultural land um, in, in, in your base state uh, or, or in Borno? No, um, because we have to look at who, who are the people who have access to those resources, um, people who are traders, uh, who have access um, to other networks that can help them make these journeys uh, to be able to get to, to Libya and to elsewhere. Um, because when we look at the route that people are taking from West Africa, we see it is difficult. I mean, even people who are moving towards Europe from the area of North Nigeria, it is not a direct route going from there. Um, and I, I think, as Toby's pointed out, IOM has been doing a great amount of, of research tracking the movement of people, um, and, and we're seeing... And we're seeing in a number of countries, even though we do have uh, sources such as the EU Trust Fund that um, have provided funds to groups uh, to respond to refugees and to respond to IDPs um, so that people don't have to reach Europe um, to reach assistance, we're not actually seeing the research yet that shows people affected by conflict are more likely to try to come to Europe. We, what we have seen um, throughout all the research is that people with resources to move move. Um, in terms of localization, yeah. uh, just to mention, um, an EU project will be beginning in Nigeria, um, implemented by a, a number of NGOs, and this is a four-country project, um, specifically looking at localization, um, specifically providing resources to national and local NGOs, uh, many of whom were represented at the Lake Chad Basin mm -hmm. Conference in Oslo uh, in February, but I, I think it is... Um, agreed across uh, the spectrum of international organizations, both UN and NGO, and, and particularly has been taken on board by ECHO, that there is a need to do more mm -hmm. um, in that respect. Unfortunately, that project just specific to Nigeria, but hopefully that can have um, mm. some positive effects elsewhere. Um, so I, I would be happy to talk to you uh, at length, I think, about the, the gender dimensions of the crisis, and we'd be really interested to hear more of, of your thoughts. But I would just point out that in this issue, which is looking at humanitarian practice <coughs> in the Lake Chad Basin, we've tried to look at a number of the issues that we are dealing with in the course of humanitarian practice. And, and one of them, and it is very much from my background as somebody that works on sexual and gender-based violence, one of the issues we've experienced in humanitarian practice is an inability to adequately respond to the scale of sexual violence, sexual exploitation and abuse of women and girls. And that's why I wanted to spend time in my article really exploring that more. Um, that is not to say that there aren't barriers and that, and, or that there would be sufficient assistance for men and boys. Thanks, Joe. Now, we could take one more round of questions and then quick answers from our panelists as we're running out of time. I've got someone here in the audience and I've got two online questions. Please. Hello, uh, Brendan Bromwich with King's College London. Um, and I'm working on, on Darfur and looking at some of the similarities here, um, particularly with respect to this whole question of the very long-term trajectory, and uh, Toby mentioned the, the, the population growth and so on. And in Darfur, what we found is a very strong linkage that we weren't picking up at the time of the humanitarian program, 2004, 5, 6, 7. For example, with the sexual-based violence, was part of a wider contest over the identity of Darfur 
destroying different solidarity groups in the, in the communities of, of the victims. Now, what I'm hearing, this is how it's resonating with what we're hearing about the, 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 the challenging facing the young men and, and so on in, in Lake Chad. And so my question is really in terms of what research and what is the trajectory being done about the research, what are the processes of dialogue in terms of what is the region going to look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Because if you've got this big uh, young population and on the one hand, you've got Boko Haram, and for what I understand, this is a, it has some kind of vision about Western kind of education being Haram and so on, and I, and I don't know the details. And that's one trajectory they've got. Another trajectory they've got is to flee to Europe. You know, in, I, I, something quite the opposite. So my question really is in terms of, you know, l linking all of these big, ticket items about what is the region going to look like 20 years from now because um, I think in in that question there are um, it just ties some of these some of these issues together and particularly in terms of return okay well return to what mm. so just a question just to see if we can look at the, at mm. the much bigger picture and, and unpack some of those issues. Thank you very much. I'm going to read out uh, two questions here, and then I'm going to ask our panelists to give um, very speedy, condensed responses, since unfortunately we're running out of time. There's never enough time for the rich discussion we want to have. Um, the first is from uh, Clea Khan, um, who is a consultant, and um, I know she has worked with both DFID and MSF in the past, amongst others, and the Red Cross. Um, Clea says, uh, thank you for a really interesting discussion. There was a reference to the Nigerian government's lack of experience with conflict. I've also heard concern about lack of experienced international and national staff, including both UN and NGOs. The quality of assistance, and particularly protection, is not going to get better unless international organizations invest in capacity building. How do we prevent deprioritization of the region, I think, in, the, in this regard? Um, the second question is from Jane Backhurst, who, um, who's been working with Christian Aid. Uh, or no, sorry, Jane. I know. <laughs> I think Jane is working with Christian Aid or possibly the Red Cross. But she said uh, Christian Aid, Oxfam, Tear Fund, Action Aid, Care, and CAFOD have just started a project funded by ECHO. Is this the one? Yes. Okay. So this is the one that um, Joe, I think, just talked about, Jane. Um, and she says, uh, looking forward to working with other NGOs as this project supports local and national NGO leadership of humanitarian response and in decision-making structures. So um, we've just got really the question from, I'm sorry, is it Brendan? Yeah, yeah Brendan and from Clea. And let's go again to Toby first. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, Brendan, hi. Great to hear your voice, and now I know where to find you. <laughs> Thank you. I look forward to that. Um, you know, I think that's a wonderful question that you posed, and that's really a question for the people of the region uh, and for the authorities of the region. Um, <clears throat> where do you want to be in 20 years' time? How do you want to get there? 
And I think in so many uh, places where international attention is fleeting, uh, it comes and goes, uh, this particular crisis may be, uh, you know, a top 10 crisis on people's minds at the moment. It may be uh, overlooked next year. It may be forgotten in three years and then it will bounce back. <coughs> the real issue will be how do local communities and how do the local authorities um, have a conversation, have a social contract about where they want to be and how they're going to get there in 20 years time. And there will be security elements to that, there will be trade elements to that, there will be environmental protection elements to that, um, you know, a citizen's charter, if you will, to ensure that uh, every girl can access quality education and stay there beyond the age of 12, 13, and 14. I mean, uh, one of the things that I often discussed with um, the governor of Borno, who was a very, is a very charismatic and able person, and he's, he's I would say, probably more of a technocrat than a politician. Um, you know, I would really ask him, where do you want to be and how are you going to get there? And, and how can the international community, with its very limited resources, given all of the other crises, um, how can we help? Because essentially, you will be the driver of change here. And, <coughs> excuse me, um, <coughs> I think that that's, that's absolutely the right question. And again, we uh, who work in the humanitarian field could be more demanding of that question and could be thinking more about it. It's easy to get uh, focused on some of the very pressing nutritional or protection issues that some of uh, my colleagues on, on the panel have, have spoken about. Um, I would like to suggest that we also have a bit of a long-term vision and uh, concern even if it's not us who will bring about that change, but that we call for it and demand real action on the ground so that we're not still talking about this one in 20 years' time. Thank you. Thank you, Toby. Chitra, are you still with us? I am, yes. Thank you. Um, I want to, um, like, I wanted to slightly um, correct what I had said about the Nigerian military's lack of experience of conflict. Um, I wasn't saying that the Nigerian military lack experience of conflict um, in general. Obviously, Nigeria um, has been and continues to be a troop-contributing country during peacekeeping missions. Um, but rather, I think this, fighting this type of conflict in Nigeria is something that's new to the Nigerian armed forces. Um, and I also had a response to the question uh, as to how the region will look like 10, 20 years from now. And let me concentrate my response on Northeast Nigeria, if I may. Um, as someone who has been engaged in Northeast Nigeria in one way or the other for um, about four and a half, five years now, I can tell you that there's very little conflict analysis that has been done and that has been publicly available, particularly at the local level. And for me, this is one of the biggest gaps that I see in the humanitarian response. Um, the lack of proper localized context and conflict analysis that includes trajectories 
of how complex dynamics may um, morph and change. And I think this is one of the, um, I think this is impeding our ability to be as effective as we can be, as well as, as well as impeding our ability to be conflict sensitive. And I'm seeing conflict dynamics exacerbated or created due to the actions of humanitarian actors. Um, I do think that there needs to be real thinking about the way in which the conflict may change in the next 5, 10, 20 years, either in terms of how the armed opposition groups themselves may change their tactics and strategies. And I think one thing that we have seen um, from the past few years is that they can and do change tactics and strategies. So when I first started working in Northeast Nigeria in 2013, no one would ever have thought that there would be um, people carrying IEDs, the so-called suicide bombers. Um, abductions were something that were new. Um, the attempt to capture and hold on to territory, that was something that was unheard of. And so we know that this is a group that does mutate to suit the changing situation. We also knew that, know that there are new groups that may um, become or, or change their role in the conflict. Um, for example, the vigilante groups and the civilian, civilian joint task force. Um, so these are people in communities who are gathered to fight armed opposition groups, but there are already some indications of human rights abuses committed by them. Um, there are also, there's also the possibility of reprisals and counter reprisals, and already we're seeing some reports of this. Um, and un unfortunately, um, some of them taking religious or ethno-linguistic um, terms. So in some areas, we've seen that tensions that may have been existing already before between different ethno-linguistic groups or religious groups have been heightened due to the conflict related to the armed opposition groups, including due to perceptions of bias when it comes to humanitarian assistance. Um, also, we have other forms of conflict dynamics that were there before that have been affected by what we've seen happening in Northeast Nigeria, such as the conflict between farmers, pastoralists, hunters, fisher folk, etc. And of course, we have elections coming up in 2019. And Mobilization around the elections has already started. Um, of course, we have to consider the political economy of conflict and the opportunities for um, personal revenue generation that exists due to the crisis and how all of this will feed into each other in the next two, five, 10, 15 years. Um, and my final point is the need to recognize continuities and discontinuities. And um, the speaker spoke about Boko Haram, meaning, you know, West, so-called Western educationist Haram. Um, I think that this is actually a simplification of the message of the armed opposition group. Um, but we need to accept and realize that there was an antipathy towards so-called Western education long before the conflict. And so this is not something that is new. And actually, this is something that has been changing as a result of the experiences that people of Northeast Nigeria have lived through. And so there is an increasing recognition of the importance of education precisely because of their experiences. Thank you so much, Chitra. Um, I'm afraid we're just about out of time. So I'm going to ask John and then Joe 
to make some very brief uh, final comments uh, in response to the questions. On sentence answers. Okay, building on Chitra's response, um, the conflict dynamics 20 years out, we need to situate that in looking at the population growth, climate change, resource degradation, economic opportunities. Um, and I wanted to pick up very briefly on Clear's last point. How do we prevent uh, the deprioritization of uh, the Lake Chad crisis? Um, I asked a similar question to David Miliband, IRC CEO, last week. His response, I thought, was great. He, he said that for crises become forgotten because they're seen as intractable or hopeless, and that we do need to do a much better job of articulating clear solutions and also demonstrating the impact that we're having. Thank you, John. Joe, the last word is for you. I will be uh, as speedy as possible. Um, and so we'll just add on um, one point um, to my colleagues' responses to each of the questions. Um, I've worked in Sudan and Nigeria um, for the past decade. And what strikes me as uh, an a key difference, uh, and, and that's going to play out in a different way in uh, the Lake Chad region um, in comparison to the work that we're currently doing in Darfur, trying to work on durable solutions with communities there, is that the, the camp setup, which has in effect established cities, I think by 2009 we had 50% of the Darfuri population was living in urban or peri-urban areas. I think I actually remember a memo from Toby circulated at this time with that statistic. Um, and whereas in Nigeria we're seeing Maiduguri become a mega city, we have seen an increase in the size of, of, of other cities like Adamawa or, or Mubi uh, or Damaturu that have swelled um, with displaced populations. But we Whereas in Darfur, we have had the emergence of these cities in areas where there have been large numbers of IDPs. And the challenge now is, what is the, the solutions package that can be offered that helps people uh, and incentivizes people who wish to move back um, to areas of origin when they have lived in a city? for that amount of time. The challenge that I'm seeing, at least in, in my work in Northeast Nigeria, is how do we get people who've lived in provincial towns to walk away from the opportunities that they have seen, and some have been mentioned in livelihoods and, and education, um, and a difference in the cultural life of a city the size of Maiduguri. And, and as, as Toby's pointed to there, huge infrastructure challenges come with that. And we've seen that every time we've had a cholera outbreak. Um, a lot would need to be done to actually equip the city to deal in the long term with twice its previous population. Um, and the challenge that we're still having now, um, we're, and a development actors working with the Nigerian government to look at how can basic services as well as civilian administration be restored in the local government area uh, capitals. And then in response to Clea's comment, I'd just like to add that in addition to capacity building, which is vital um, amongst government actors, amongst UN, INGO, national NGO actors, international standards are absolutely crucial for any capacity building to be useful. Training alone does not have the impact unless you are working in a system that meets standards, whether those standards be sphere, whether they be humanitarian principles, whether they be standards related to protection and do no harm. 
And I think that we have to look not only at the investment and the learning um, in, in training um, and in capacity, uh, capacity building and in bringing in um, technical expertise where it is needed for those processes, but we have to meet standards in the response in Nigeria, um, in Cameroon, in Chad and Niger in order to operationalize that training. Um, otherwise, we're undercutting the work that we're trying to do. Thank you very much, Joe. I'm sorry, we have run out of time. We've run over a little bit, which is down to my poor uh, timekeeping and chairing, I suspect. But I'd like to thank all of you for coming today and the online audience for joining us for all of your excellent questions and comments. And I'd especially like to thank our panelists. Toby, thank you so much for joining us from Afghanistan. I know you have many more pressing things to do, and uh, we really appreciate you making the time. And Chitra also, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the telephone line. Uh, it, it, we were able to hear you very well, and we really appreciate you making the effort to do that. Thank you. And to Joe, my co-editor, and also to John for their very, uh, very interesting and insightful um, input. So thank you very much, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.